Genesis, and we've only got maybe one more week of this, and then uh, we'll be caught up to where we went before. We started, uh, well, I, I don't know, I can't remember when I did anything, but we did Abraham, I think, a year or so ago, and so we'll be caught up to that point, and then we'll be ready to do something new. We have a few weeks because of old-fashioned days where we uh, will be missing a few weeks in a row there. We'll let you know as they come up. But we're going to look at chapter 7. And we've already looked at chapter 7, you say, but we're going to start there and uh, go on to chapter 8 and chapter 9. And <clears throat> I like what the Bible says. God as king sitteth upon the flood. And that's what the psalmist wrote when he wrote about God. And that's a good thing to think about when we're reading about this flood. And this wasn't any flood like we've ever seen. We see floods in our day down in Florida and New Orleans and other places where the waters rise and, <coughs> and things uh, get smashed and busted up. But nothing like this. This is, not, this is entirely different. And there are people who think that this flood, Noah's flood, was just a local flood. And they think that just in that part of the world that there was a flood and it killed everybody because that's where everybody was. And uh, I don't think that's true. We talked about the fountains of the deep opening up and the oceans bursting water up into the air. Now, this was quite a, a catastrophic event. And so last week we finished off, Noah is in the ark and he's floating along in the ark. And now the flood will gradually subside. And the way this is told is like we've seen already. I told you, uh, don't be convinced like some people are that the Bible is sort of a, oh, sort of a history and it's not very accurate. Don't ever believe that. It's to the day. All right? It's to the day. It's recorded to the very day. And it goes on and on. And we looked at the record from Adam to Noah. Remember, we were showing how long each person lived and uh, how long that took. We're able to put the year down from the beginning right till when the, when the flood came. We were able to put the year down exactly. We know how long it took because the book of Genesis and the whole Bible is a very exacting book. And we're going to see it again now as we begin uh, chapter 8, <coughs> verse 1. God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And so uh, he said, God remembered Noah, not that he ever forgot Noah, okay? It's not that he said, oh, yeah, there's a guy floating around in an ark. It wasn't that at all. It's that God is now going to turn his focus on to Noah, and we're going to watch what happens now at the flood as had its peak. Now, we go back to chapter 7 and verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and the 17th day. And so, uh, Noah is 
600 when the flood comes. It's 600 years old. And he says it's the, the second month of that year when it, uh, the flood hits. And it is the uh, 17th day. Very precise. 16th month and the 17th day of the month. That's when the flood hits. Right, so the flood begins here. This is, I think this is kind of fascinating too. Let's watch what happens. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And so uh, we have the, uh, uh, finally it stops raining. All right, the rain stops and the, the fountains of the deep or the ocean cracks that cause water to go up uh, stop and uh, it's going to uh, finally stop raining. And uh, Let's go on a little. Verse 3, and the waters return from off the earth continually and after the end of 150 days the waters were abated and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day and so uh, it says that the waters run for 150 days, which is uh, five months. All right, 30 days in a month. And so three times five is 1,550 days. So it takes five months before the ark rests. That is, it gets caught on some piece of ground and stops floating around. And so at, at seven months and 17 days, the ark comes to some place up high in the mountains and it stops. Now, how far did the, did the waters go up? Well, the waters went 22 and a half feet higher than the highest mountain. Right. So and the Bible tells us that, that the waters, when the flood came and it rained in 40 days and 40 nights, it was, at, when it finished, it was over top of the mountains, 22 and a half feet. Right. So it's not a little puddle, okay? <laughs> it's over the highest mountain, 22 and a half feet. And that's a lot of things. So God is going to help this now to go down. And we said, verse 4, the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. So somewhere up there, uh, it finds a spot, it lands, stops, all right, they're not running it. And verse 5, the waters decreased continually till the tenth month, and the tenth month on the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains. See? And so now they come to the tenth month, And now they can see tops of mountains right, after 10 months. All right, so they're that far along. Now they can look out and see mountain peaks around them. So they're somewhere way up on the top, and they can look around and see that. Verse 6, came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the 
window of the ark which he had made. And so on top, God had told him to make a window. And then he opens the window after 40 days go by. And so there's 40 days <coughs> after they can see the mountaintops. And then it's 40 days, he opens the window, and he's going to do two things. Verse 7. He sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. He also sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him in the ark. So at 40 days, he releases two birds. One's a raven, the other one is a dove. Now a raven, if you know anything about a raven, they'll eat anything dead and uh, pick at it. You understand there's dead things all over floating in the water. All right? Everything that was alive drowned. And so a raven goes out there. There's lots of food here. <laughs> he can land on an elephant or a human, which I'm sure we're there. And uh, he can pick and eat. And so he can go land on a mountaintop and pick and eat. So the raven, he's out there. He's feeling good. He's a different kind of bird, all right? He's a scavenger, and he doesn't come back. Verse 8, he sent forth a dove, see the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. Dove found no rest for the soul of her foot. She returned to him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Now remember we said the mountaintops were shown, but there's still water covering everything under that. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So no one knew the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days, and sent forth a dove, which returned not unto him anymore. And so there's seven more days after the first time he sends a dove out. The dove comes back, and he's got a little a stick, a leaf in his mouth. And then seven more days, he sends a dove out. And so that uh, means that, <coughs> that the dove doesn't come back. He's got a place where he can stay and live. And so that puts us uh, 40 days is 30 days, one month and 10 days, plus 14 days. That puts us at 11 months. 11 months here, and we've got uh, uh, 24 days, if you add it up, 11 months and 24 days, and that's when the dove doesn't come back. So the beginning, the waters are going down, and what God had done, we saw in verse 1, God made a wind to pass over the earth, and so there's a strong wind blown and it's drying up the waters and pushing things and the waters are slowly going down, down, down. Now it's been 11 months and 24 days he's been in the ark, all right? And you say, well, finally the bird comes back, he's all set. No, he's not. No, he's not, all right? So let's go to verse 13. Came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters are dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. Behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the seventh and twenty 
fiftieth day of the month was the earth dried. And so now he's gone to uh, from eleven months. He's now gone up to uh, the second month again, and he's on the uh, let's see what day was it? Twentieth day. So he's now moved ahead to the second month, and it's the twentieth day. All right. And so he started the year 600 year of his life, and now he's 601, all right? And it's the second month, the 17th day. Now it's the second month and the 20th day. And now God says, you can leave. Verse 15, and God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives, with thee, bring forth every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both fowl and cattle, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And, be, and so they all are finally allowed by God to go out. And so it has been a year and ten days. And one year and ten days he's been in the ark. All right. Now, that's a long time for waters to go down. So it's not like a flood like we see down and you know along the Mississippi where the flood comes up and for a week it's there and in another couple weeks it's all gone. This took over a year for the waters to get down below. So how high were they? Well it says there 22 and a half feet over the highest mountain and it was five months before they got down to the highest spot where the ark got stuck. All right, and it stuck there. And then it's over a year. So it's even after the bird is sent out and doesn't return, it's still uh, three months and three days more that God keeps him in the ark. And finally, God says, Now you can go. What does that tell you about Noah? Well, let me ask you, would you want out? <laughs> Get me out of here. I'm going. That bird didn't come back. See ya. Here we go. No, 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 no. Noah is waiting for God to say, you can go. And Noah's very patiently waiting for God. All right, so Noah's a very strong character. He's patiently waiting for God. And so the idea that it's a local flood, it shows us it took uh, a year and uh, 20 days uh, for the whole thing to, or a year and 10 days for the whole thing to finally subside so they can go back out of there. So it's certainly not a local flood. It's a worldwide flood, and it covers the face of the whole earth. And now they are finally set free. And so the concept, and it's pretty common to hear people say, well, this is a, a, just a local thing. Uh, it, it's certainly not. All right, now let's see what happens once they get out. Verse 18, chapter, chapter 8. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife, and his son's wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, whatever creepeth on the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. That must have been quite a sight, huh? Everything coming out. And I know we used to let cattle out of the barn after having them in all winter. You know what they do. 
They kick up their heels and they run. They were free at last. And uh, I'm sure these animals were glad to get out of that Ark 20. And Noah, building an altar to the Lord, took of every clean beast and every clean fowl, offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's why the Bible says they could take two of every animal, but clean beasts are going to take seven of every one. And so when there's time to sacrifice, he's not wiping out the population. He brought seven of every clean animal. And so he's going to take those animals, all right, the beast, cattle, sheep, uh, and birds, and make a burnt offering to the Lord. 21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. That's a wonderful thing. God said, that smells good. That's what the whole idea behind a sacrifice was. It's why they made burnt offerings. They said, well, we want to, something to go up to God. And so we mean this with our heart. We light this on fire, and the smoke goes up, and God smells the smoke, and it smells sweet to it. What's sweet? Not the smell of smoke. Right? It's not the smell of burning flesh that makes God say, oh, that smells great. Although I kind of like it on a grill. I don't mind it, all right? Uh, but it's, it's uh, what's in the heart. And what's in his heart? What's going up? Well, he's very thankful. He's alive. He's alive. And hundreds of people that he knew, people he'd preached to, died, I'm sure, clinging to the ark. I'm sure when they first got in and those waters started coming up, they were screaming outside, Noah! Let us in, let us in. And you remember, it was God who closed the door and God who sealed it. And God said, that's it. You had your chance. And so it was a pretty tragic event, but he's alive, his sons are alive, they're all alive, the animals have come out, and God, he's saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We ought to be the same way. It ought to be a regular smell coming off of us, a thankfulness about us. Because you you're delivered too. You're delivered from death. You're delivered from hell. You're delivered from the power of sin. All right? And, and there ought to be a regular thanksgiving part of our life. We're grateful to God. So, verse 21, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And people say, you're always saying something about these climate people because of that right there. God said, the earth remains, seed time harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer. It's going to be that way until the earth is ended. So you can believe God, or you can believe somebody who says, well, no, in 20 years the earth is going to be spoiled. I don't 
buy that foolishness. God said it right there. I'm going to make sure that every year there's a spring, every year there's a fall, every year there's a winter, there's heat in the summer. I'm going to take care of all that for you and make sure that that will be until the end of time because I am not ever going to do what I just did again. Now, the lesson of the flood is a lesson of creation. It's God in charge of creation. God doing what he wants with his creation. It's a lesson of judgment. God will judge the world when they do so much rebel against him. But there's much more important thing than that. Let's read on chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. All right. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth on the earth, upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as a green herb I have given you all things. And so now is a change. I told you that the flood would bring a change in human history. Here's the first change that God says. He says, you're going to be able to eat these, eat the fish, and eat the animals. You can eat these things. In the beginning, they were supposed to eat what was growing. And God said to them, I've given the greenness of the earth, whatever's growing here, that's your food. Eat that. All right, but there comes a time when he says, I want you to, you can eat animals. You can eat whatever you want now out of that. And it's all going to be good. I'm giving those to you. But I think there's a very special reason. Verse 4, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. All right. God's going to get a point across. A very important point. When you don't eat blood, you're going to kill a lamb, you're going to do these things, you are not going to eat blood. Don't eat blood. Now we know that when they sacrificed in the Old Testament, they usually slit the lamb's throat or whatever it was. They slit the throat and they had a bowl there. And, and the priest would hold a bowl and you did the slitting. And they grabbed the lamb's head and slit his neck and they catch the blood in a bowl, pumping out of the animal, catching it in a bowl. And you had to do that and bleed that animal out correctly. All right, you don't just kill it. All right, and eat it. You got to bleed it out. That's what's required. Now, here's another reason. Verse five: Surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast, I will require it. The hand of man, the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. In the old world, in the beginning, from, Noah, from Adam up to Noah, 
All right? They begin to kill each other. The second sin is a murder, right? And Cain kills Abel. Along comes this guy, Lamech. You remember him? I killed two people. And whoever thinks they're going to take it out on me, I'll kill them all. And it's very, until God says the whole world is filled with violence. They're bloodthirsty people. Now God says, I'm making a rule. I'll try to impress you here with this rule, he says. Uh, if an animal kills you, that animal dies. If your neighbor kills you, he dies. It's blood for blood. And so when your blood is shed, then you're going to shed the blood of the other person. What's he trying to do? Restrain humans. Because what does he say about them? He said there, uh, verse back in chapter 8, <coughs> verse 21, The Lord smelled a sweet savor. The Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore. For the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his view. Humans were just hardly born and growing up a little. They got these violent thoughts. And that's what God said just before the flood. The earth is just filled with violence. It's filled with violence. And now he says, now we're going to put it out like this. You're not going to eat blood. If you think about that, you don't eat blood. And if you take somebody's life... You're paying with your own. And so that there will begin to be a concept building in the human mind that is this. You don't just eat blood like it's nothing. It's something. And you don't shed blood like it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's going to cost you your own life if you shed blood. And so he begins to elevate blood higher, higher. What do you think he's doing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then the main phrase, oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. Somehow he's got to get in your mind, in my mind, in the mind of the human race, that blood is precious because one day there'll be a bloodshed that is very precious. And we cannot look at blood like it's no big deal. And then finally on the cross of, of Calvary, Jesus sheds his blood and we stand in awe of it. And we look at it, it's blood, blood is shed. And so he's trying to bring out on the human race what wasn't there in the beginning. It wasn't there in the beginning. That blood is precious. And the idea is he is trying to get us to think different. Now, verse 8, chapter 9. God spake unto Noah's son, saying, and I behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. 
with every living creature that is with you, the fowl and the cattle of every beast of the earth is with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall be any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. That means us here. And he shall be sitting here tonight. The promise is made to you and I. I do set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a token for a covenant between me and the earth. It's come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, the bow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so he says, here's, I'm making a covenant with you. Why? Why? I want to know why God's decided, let's make a covenant. Why does God step out? He just had a flood the whole world and kill the whole population except for who's in the ark. And now he's going to make a covenant. It's a very, very important concept to get in our mind about God. So that there's a major sin event, which was the flood, all right? There's a major sin as an event, and God used the flood to destroy all human flesh except for eight people, eight survivors. There's been a major sin event. They are so violent that you're going to destroy them. A year goes by. Noah's now coming off the ark. He just gets off the ark. He makes a sacrifice to God. And God said, I think Noah's got it. He gets it. Gets what I'm doing for him. And so he wants to say thank you. Yeah, yeah, you better, man, you better say thank you when God saves your soul. You better say thank you. And so he says thank you, and God says, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, this isn't the first covenant. I'll go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. There was another covenant. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. He's talking to Adam and Eve. God's talking about what's going to happen. Uh, verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So, promise. When was that promise made? After the first sin. Right? So we have a sin event which was in the Garden of Eden, where they disobeyed God and they ate forbidden fruit. 
So we've got two major sin events. The first is the first sin, and God comes up after the first sin. And you think he's saying, you're going to get it. And they thought that's what he was going to say. How do we know? Because God went looking for him in the garden. And he said, where are you? Where are you? We, we hid. Why did you hide? Because uh, she ate the fruit. All right, so we're hiding. Because we're, we were naked. Right. Who said? Who said you were? Well, so the first rebellion against God which created sin as a part of the human race, God comes right in on the heels of it, and he says, I'm promising you, as soon as this rebellion is done, here's what I promise. A hero will be born of a woman, and he will come and crush the serpent's head with his heel. There's your promise. All right, now, the second promise. Flood comes, world's full of violence, flood comes, wipes it out, Noah's on there for just over a year, comes off, makes a sacrifice to God, God says, I got another promise for you. Never again will I do that. Now, just think if God didn't say that, what would you do the next time it rained? <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute, it's raining. I remember what happened the last time it rained. And this is not good. It's going to start raining. So what God does, this is very much the way God thinks. So there's a major sin event. There's two major ones, followed by a promise from God. What happened? Sin came a full-blown rebellion against God. That's what sin is. I don't care what it is. It's rebellion against God. Alright? So sin comes into the world and it's followed immediately on its heels by death. Soon as they eat the fruit, God said, it's going to cost you your lives. I told you, if you ate of that fruit, you're surely going to die. And so they eat the fruit, and now they got God's word ringing in there. You're surely going to die. All right? You're surely going to die. And so it creates the sin event. Sin occurs, a rebellion, from it comes death. And then there is a great hopelessness. What do we do now? What are we going to do now? Sin has occurred. It's too late. We can't roll it back. And as a result of it, we're going to die. And... We're in a hopeless state of event. What are we going to do? Then comes the flood. 
and it's like nothing everybody, anybody ever dreamed. Nobody ever dreamed that something like that could happen. And the waters cover the entire earth 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. It's a catastrophic event. Everybody's dead. Every human, except for the eight people in the ark, are dead. And so where are we? Major sin. They're in violence. That fill the earth with violence and murder. And now death has come because of their violent rebellion. Death comes. They're all dead. And what's left? Hopelessness. What do we do? Next time we sin, what's going to happen? First time we sin, God said, I'm going to send somebody. He's going to fix this. He's going to fix this. You had in the garden the serpent, represented Satan, coming in, whispering in your ear, right? It's okay. You're in charge. You can do it. You're in charge. Don't listen to God. You can spin your own worlds off your own created fingertips. You will have the knowledge that God has. Eat the fruit and be wise. And you'll control your own destiny. All right? And now, that turned out to be a real lie. All right? Turned into death and hopelessness. And so God says... Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send somebody going to fix that mess. And Eve thought it was Cain. No good, we'll fix it right now. Of course, it would take 4,000 years to fix it. Jesus would come. All right. So uh, the second time when the flood comes, there's certainly a hopelessness. If God is going to react this way, we're in serious trouble. He said, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to make sure every year, for as long as the world goes, there'll be springtime and harvest. I will never kill the entire population of the world again, ever. I'm not going to do that for you. All right, what I'm going to do is make a promise to you that that will never happen again, and I'll put my bow in the sky. The other night, the kids were down here playing kickball, and it was raining. They kept going. <laughs> as soon as it was over, there was a little rainbow in the sky. God's bow, God's promise, never again, never again. It still occurs to this very day. You can see the rainbow in the sky. That's God's promise, never going to destroy the world again. So what did God do? When we put ourselves in a hopeless situation through sin, you kind of, I'm making a promise to you. It's not hopeless. I don't want you to live in despair. I don't want you to live in hopelessness. I'm making promises to you that I'm here. I want you to come out of this well. So listen to me. I'm going to send someone who's going to fix your problem of sin. I never will do this to the world again. I will keep things as they are, and I'm going to make sure that happens. And in the meantime, 
There's a promise from God that blood will become essential in your thinking. Don't forget about blood. Now, he's also going to do something else. All right, let's get, go over to uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10. Actually, we need to go to chapter 11. We're going to look at something here. Um, Because it's another one of these lists. It's a very different list from the ones we had before. All right? And so, chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. One of Noah's sons is named Shem. Shem was promised is going to bring Jesus Christ into the world, all right? And so we get Shem in verse 10. The generations of Shem, Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxed two years after the flood. So we start two years after the flood. We know exactly when the flood occurred. Now two years after, Shem has a son, all right, Arphaxed. And Shem lived after he begot Arphaxed 500 years. And Arphaxed, verse 12, lived uh, 35 years. And so we go down this list. We'll put it up here. I may not spell every name out because I'll be here a long time. But we start with Shem. I want you to watch carefully. Right? He lives to be 600 years old. He's got a son. Our Faxed, he lives to be 438. He has a son, Salah, lives to be 433. Eber, from where comes the word Hebrew, he lives to be 464. Peleg is the next one in the line, 239. Pay attention now. Reu is the next son, also lives to be 239. Sirug, nice name, huh? He lives to be 230. <coughs> Naor lives to be 148. And then Terra. He will live to be 205, right? And then is born Abraham. How many generations? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So we have Noah, from Adam to Noah, ten generations. These guys are living 900 years. Till Methuselah lives 969 years. But Noah lives 500 years, or actually 600 years, as we looked at today. Noah is 600 years old when the flood arrives. All of his family, grandfather, father, and so forth, is dead. And the last one dies the very year the flood arrives. Right now, 
after the flood. What do you notice? Their lives are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Why? Because God said, what I'm going to do is cut you down to 120 years. And so when Shem comes off the ark, all right, and has two years after the flood, has his first son, and if we add up those times, all right, from the birth of his son to the birth of Abraham, it's 390 years. Which means Shem, who was on the ark, Abraham would know who he was, might have seen him. He's still alive. All right, because these lifespans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Now, I know this guy, and I know this guy, and I know this guy is still alive, and it's only 390 years, and uh, so he knows a lot of the people there. What do you think the purpose of that is? <coughs> to tell a story. What happened? Well, I was on the yard. Here comes this guy up, you know, and he's uh, 500 years old or whatever. And he said, yeah, I was there. I saw it happen. I saw it. Why are the records so precise? Because they were there. Noah had way back almost to Adam. Adam died before Noah was born. And Enoch was translated. But the rest of them lived right up to the time of Noah's life. Now, after the flood, after they've seen the total destruction of the flood, all right, Shem, ten generations later comes Abraham, and now the time of life is shrinking. So what's God done? He says, well, I'm giving you first a warning about blood. I want you to understand how precious blood is. I'm making a promise to you never to destroy the world again like that. That'll never happen again. I promise you the world will continue till the end of time. I'm making that promise to you. And I also promise you I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix your mess. It's going to fix the problem. So what has God given to the human race? Hope. 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 There's hope. We never, ever, ever have to go around hopes. These things remain, says Paul, what? Faith, hope, and love. They remain. Where do we have faith? Because it says here, God says, I will not do that again to the earth. And what? We believe it. And he says, I'll make sure there's spring and summer and fall and winter every year as long as you have. We believe it. Amen. Right? He said, I'm here to stop the violence and try to control it so you understand why we believe it. We believe it. We believe what God says. That's faith. And that creates in us as we trust God and we believe God, that creates in us hope. Why? Because he's still the same. Yesterday we sing a song that comes in the Bible. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. He's going to be the same. And so faithful he is to us. And trying to, after we screw it up like you couldn't believe, what does he do? 
here's a hope. There's hope for you. I promise never to do that again. Here's hope for you. Why didn't he just say, ah, you guys, if you make it, you do. If you don't, no, it's not God. Not who he is, not what he wants. He wants us to live in hope of what he's going to bring us. And so it's very much meant to be, these beginning chapters of the Bible are meant to be for us uplifting. So no matter what happens, uh, God is in control. All right, now, this is really cool. Just for fun, look at Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter number 3. I've never preached a sermon on this because you'd be bored out of your mind. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 3. And what do we have? We have a genealogy. We had one from Adam to Noah, right? Year after year, every year counted. Right up till 600, uh, six, or six, 1610 years up to the flood. All right? Then we go right from the flood up to Abraham, 390 years as the lifespans get shorter. But the Bible says, watch this. Verse 38, last verse, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And so Adam's the last one on the list. He's obviously the beginning of time. So if you were to go backwards and start reading from 38 up and up and up and up, you'd come to, of course, Noah, and you'd come to Abraham, 13 more generations, you come to David, and you keep going up and up and up the list, and then you get to verse 23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was, and we go down the list, all the way to Adam. So we have a genealogy in the Bible that goes from Adam to Jesus Christ. So now come and tell me that the world's been here for millions of years and man has been crawling his way out of the mud pit. No, it's not right there. It's the first man, Adam, and he's on this list that leads to Jesus 4,000 years. And so we have, if we trust God, we believe in the Bible, we have the human race at about 4,000, maybe a little longer than that, years from Adam to Jesus. And we could pretty much know how many it is since, right? It's about 2,000 more years. So how old is the creation that God made in Genesis 3? It's about 6,000 years old. That's why when the theories come out and say, all right, this took 20 million years for this to happen, Say, no, it doesn't. I got a I got a person to person history from Adam to Jesus Christ. There it is. You say, how did they ever keep that? Well, they knew what they had to do and they kept track of it. In the beginning, they passed down word of mouth. Right? And then along comes Moses and he starts recording. Record it, record it, record it, record it. 
and then they keep recording as it unfolds and now we get to Jesus Christ and they're able, Dr. Luke is able to go from Adam back to Jesus. Incredible. It's an incredible record that the Bible has. And so if people are saying, well, you don't know about the Bible, can you beat that? Can you come up with something better than that? My grandfather, before he died, said, I'll give you the last six generations. And he named off six generations back. Can you name six generations back off the top of your head? There was a time when people thought more about it. I mean, now we've come, we can't even hardly remember grandpa, let alone the one before. All right? And we've kind of lost a little something along the way. These people kept track of it. And why do you think that was? Proof that creation is what it is. It's about 6,000 years old. I guess, give or take some time in there. You can't say that exactly, but we're pretty close. We got it right here. All right, so we have that, and we have Jesus Christ arriving, the promise fulfilled. The world is still going on. There's still spring. We're coming into summer. It's like God said, right? He made the promise back then. It's still good now. And now we have learned just how precious blood is. We remember, all right, like he warned us. Remember blood. You need to remember blood, and it brought us to the blood of Christ. And so, when we come to Genesis, it is not some vague idea. And I heard another preacher talking about Genesis, same stuff we've been talking about. And he came up with some crazy ideas, and I listened to see what he was going to say. He was talking about the Babylonian history of creation and the bible tells us when babylon started all right it was after noah so there's 10 whole generations before babylon even started and the bible tells us that he's talking about the babylonian thing of creation and uh, i'm thinking myself what's wrong with this guy why doesn't he read the bible i pulled one of my books off the shelf and i opened it up to see what it was there. And it says, well, the Babylonian record of creation, I closed it up, put it back on the shelf. I'm not reading that moron, all right? What's wrong with him? We don't go back to the Babylonians to ask. We got it right here. It's a perfect record of what happened. Now, God has one more situation to deal with next week. We deal with a situation where God will now enforce the rules that he gave them. And they weren't listening. How long does it take before people will listen to God? How you doing with that? How we all doing with that? All right. So we get one more event that's going to come up. And it's very instructive because I think of all the events in the beginning of Genesis, there's nothing more clear in our society today than what we look at next week. Thank you.